Hello, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. So it is a Brother, Brother podcast tonight. Jeremy is in the wilds of Arkansas somewhere. Um, today, we are discussing shoegaze, an oft-used and rarely similarly defined um, genre of music, but also just a, a, as a term. It's, it's, there's not a whole lot of consensus on on what this actually means. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but um, what's your impression of, of shoegaze? Like, what was your, what did you, what do you think of it when you think of, of well, I, uh, the term? I think, I think that, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is, you know, really sort of an iconic band with an iconic album, um, and that's, that's My Bloody Valentine's Loveless. Um, and, you know, that was really my first experience with shoegaze and probably my only for you know for the following five maybe you know close to 10 years um i mean it wasn't something that uh well i'd be curious to hear your thoughts as to how you think it aged but i'm not sure it's something that first of all lasted all that long from what i can tell um but also i don't know that it's necessarily something that stuck around in the same way that like certain you know uh music of the same era whether it's the pixies or pavement or um you know oasis did uh yeah. granted you know they're obviously those are three very different bands with very different scales but you know so I, I was hoping that we could do this this what the fuck episode um where i can i can sort of you know probe into what was actually going on when it when it all transpired mm-hmm. and see if I can figure out a little bit more about how to slot it in there well, that's somewhere kinda, between. That's yeah. kind of why I asked you the question because I, you know, it is kind of this nebulous term that gets thrown out. The funny thing is that for a, for a genre and, and for a, a term that has so many different um, sort of uh, different versions of a timeline and a, and a, and a, a membership for lack of a better term, um, it is does it's one of the few genres I can think of that that virtually everybody agrees on on what the masterpiece is. Well, everybody not, agrees not on what the, the masterpiece version is. Yeah, but everybody agrees what the catalog is. It's yeah. like it, it's one of these things that it's such an evocative um, name, but also it was it, it was a sort of subgenre that was cast with such a narrow scope, which is relatively unusual. I mean, think about like the way we've talked about you know, what is New Wave before? And it's like, we end up with this, like, you know, this sort of scotch-taped definition of, well, it's this but not this, except on Tuesdays and Fridays and every other Sunday. Um, you know, because it just, it's so it was so many things to so many different people and different times and places. But, like, you say shoegaze, and everybody immediately thinks of that uh, that blurry cover of, uh, of the strings of a guitar and My Bloody Valentine. It's like it's it, such a clear-cut moment well, and, and thing. It almost could be like a, a single album genre. It's, it, <laughs> although, it, you know, it does... I, I will say, I mean, you say that there's a, a consensus around the catalog. There really isn't. People will go one side or the other. People will say, oh, well, you know, Spaceman 3 belongs in there, or... You know, Bardo Pond or or somebody along what? those lines. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be the person who said that, just for yeah. the record. Or Swerve Driver, you know, belongs in or out. But basically, I, I th- you know, I, I, when I was looking back at it, it's it does sort of exist from isn't anything in the late '80s through about '92, and it really only had you know sort of a handful of of. Bands that are are considered strictly of that genre that don't straddle multiple genres. Um, 
Well, let's no. let's take a step back and, and let me ask you, Wyndham, um, to to really kick off this episode with a proper question for you, the expert on shoegaze here. How did it get its name? Well, thank you for asking, Christian. Um, it got its name. It's actually sort of it's funny because it, it bears no resemblance to the pejorative it was meant to be originally. It was. Um, called shoegaze, I believe, uh, originally in the NME or Melody Maker, uh, as as a sort of put down because these guys were so boring live, because all they did and they they all sort of had the same fashion sense, so they all had kind of longish hair, and they were looking down at their pedals uh, and concentrating so much on what pedal to hit next because a very uh, effect oriented uh, type of guitar sound that. Um, people were like, oh, they're just staring at their shoes all day. It's shoegazers, which was sort of meant to be a riff on navel gazers, like self-involved uh, people who don't really give a shit about performance. They only give a shit about what they're doing in front of themselves. So it was a very, it was almost, you know, it was a genre that's marked by its lack of dynamics and stage presence. Uh, on top of that, the, I mean, just to add to the the sort of air of, of um I wouldn't call it misanthropy. misanthropy. I'd call it, um, you know, sort of um, introspection would be the kind word. Um, But basically nobody, there was never pictures of these bands. There was never a visual style element to them above and beyond just being loud and on stage and basically looking down. So shoegazers... Yeah, they kind of um, all look like the picture that comes in the frame in the 80s um, of, like, if you pick, you know, four college kids, it's like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah they have hair between shoulder length and not, and, like, short. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it, it wasn't a very interesting, and, you know, I mean, I did, this was a, you know, I think, um, you know, in comparison with what came after it, which was, you know, it sort of settled in between Madchester, which was very personality-driven by the bands, and... Britpop, which was very, very personality and rock star driven, um, you know, with Damon Albarn and the Gallagher brothers and Jarvis Cocker and all these, you know, supersized personalities. Shoegaze sat in the middle there from like 88 to 92. And basically, unless you were a real liner note junkie, um, you didn't know anybody's name. Um, you've come to know Kevin Shields' name more now uh, because of some of the soundtrack work he's done and, and his remarkable uh, feats of procrastination and perfectionism. But, you know, I mean, I didn't... I remember My Bloody Valentine, and I wouldn't have been able to tell you how many people were in the band or what they looked like or anything. Um, They really shied away from any kind of publicity that was focused on uh, exposing who they are and just threw out the music, and, and that was it. So it was kind of a boring time to be a fan, you know, it's it's interesting um, thinking about this from the perspective of like the the way that w- when you talk about sort of boring uh, or, or you know the potential for boredom on stage, one thing that always jumps to mind is you know how you can keep a a, a, a laptop based um, music set entertaining, and you know you look at guys these days like um, less Animal Collective, but certainly Panda Bear. Um, you know, you have a, a situation where somebody basically, I mean, I won't, I won't do the dismissive 
thing and suggests that he literally hits the space bar um, and sort of rocks out for 45 minutes or an hour. Um, but, you know, I, I think he is uh, he is as hands-on as he chooses to be basically right because it is recorded and he could just hit play but but you know he likes to he likes to sort of phrase loop and mix things on stage but but bottom line that would be fucking insufferable to watch if it weren't for the visual effects that they put on you know big screens and digital projectors um and some of these things some of these like sort of technology aspects of the uh, performance and the ambiance that i think um is probably actually owes a lot to shoegaze, whether uh, it whether it knows it or not. You know the the fact the sort of combination of of um, ambient rock sounds and an interest in club culture and an interest in what's going on in you know uh, the world of DJs uh, and dance music probably brought some of the club vibe and ambience into the rock club. I, would you agree with that? I mean, I, yeah. I feel like it's had a bigger Bigger legacy, Post. you know, subsequently than it did than yeah, like absolutely. you know than it was ever a movement at the time. Well, I think it's you know part and parcel with, with having a name that began as a put down um, and is now wildly embraced. I mean, there's a lot of anything that's that's sort of, but you know just going back to the performative element of it, and you talk about someone like Panda Bear. I mean, you can you can throw a great party uh, using a laptop. I mean, you look at Dan Deacon or or Girl Talk. Or somebody like that, and those are raging. yeah. As I always joke, this guy, his girl talk that is, has somehow managed to, uh, um, you know, like put his iPod on and uh, party his ass off and get <laughs> naked over the course of two hours while chugging a bottle of whiskey. Um, I have no idea how he's managed to do this and how make himself like a successful artist versus the asshole at the party, but like, yeah. somehow it works. The one redemptive thing about the shoegaze bands, though, and having seen them live, many of them, um, including My Bloody Valentine at the Ritz, which is now Webster Hall, which is now closed, but um, was the overpowering volume. <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't even really uh, rely on like lighting effects or anything like that. It was just like it made your eardrums bleed. It made your... Uh, you know your core shake. Well, um, as you've said, I mean, this was like MBV was the only band that basically played Dino off their own stage, yeah. right? Like, I mean, and that was when Dino was playing at their absolute loudest. And they toured together um, for a while. You know, Kevin Shields, I think, and, and Jay Maskus. That was, you know, is interesting. This was a uh, uh, this was a scene in in uh, England, but it also it you know. Um, you know, Jay Mascus had a lot of influence uh, within this scene, um, and there was, uh, you know, basically um, it was sort of born of and Dinosaur again. I I love Dinosaur. They are they were my you know my hometown team from college, but um, you know Jay's not exactly a whirling dervish on stage. <laughs> um, you know he's he's sort of head down and. And um, you know, more concentrating on his pedals. So I can see where you know, just the um, you know, where the volume and the and the stage dynamics uh, are are attributed to some degree to him. And I think he and Kevin Shields were very close friends and collaborators. Um, so when they toured together, um, that was a, almost a, a sort of shoegaze. But you never think of Dino as being a shoegaze man. Kindred spirits. Kindred spirits. There you go. Uh, but yeah, so it was. You wanna, uh, do you want to throw on a little MBV, take a break, and we'll, uh, we'll come back and we can talk a little bit about like the lineage and then even some of the Sonics? Sure. 
Welcome back to Brother, 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 and today we are talking about shoegaze. Um, and, you know, we've walked through, I guess, we, you sort of described the scene to me and, and laid out, like, who the sort of cornerstone bands are here. Um, we were we were discussing the fact that it is sort of one of the most, um, like, there isn't a ton of uh, disagreement about certainly what the best album is, um, My Bloody Valentine's uh, Loveless, but, but I think also, you know, there's a fair amount of... Um, uh, consistency in what people think of as the sort of core shoegaze bands, but I, I was hoping we could take a step back and think about like what were these guys listening to, and wh- where did sort of where did they get these ideas, and where did this stuff come from? I think the the sort of landmark record that that presages the arrival of the shoegaze bands would be Psycho Candy by Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, is kind of uh, you know that idea of building an entire. Um, album out of feedback uh, was so novel at the time I can't really even explain how different that sounded um, you know when I first picked that up in England in um, mid 80s you mean compared to Sting's album that came out the same year or whatever yeah but even compared to like you know I was listening to a lot of the Smiths and and things of that nature and it really it was a disruptor Um, how, how soon is now is so unusual for like the amount of distortion that sort of exists and, and the, you know, um, the, the sonics or the effects that are used in that, it's a pretty unusual song by Smith standards. So much of their stuff was like really clean feed guitars. Yeah. Um, which was, but Johnny Marr was a really influential guitar player. I think among this crowd, um, the fact that, you know, England started waking back up to guitar music from its, um, you know, love affair with the synth in the early eighties. Um, you know, is is really uh, you know driven home here. It feel it felt like you know sort of the stone road. It it sort of followed a path from Jesus and Mary Chain. It was like Jesus and Mary Chain music with Cocteau Twins vocals is basically what shoegaze is. And then you, you sort of follow along the path of guitar players, Johnny Marr, uh, John Squire from um, Stone Roses, and and you kind of see where this guitar obsessive nerdiness is headed and it's headed to the guitars of Mark Gardner from Ride and 
and, um, you know, slow dive. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, Kevin Shields and my bloody Valentine, but you did some research on, on, you know, what the sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I think sound is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I, you know, I, I was hoping to sort of ground this, I think, even in, in a longer lineage, I think, you know, you, you did a really good job at sort of talking about the contemporaries and sort of the immediate precedence. Precursors, for stuff. yeah. But I think it goes deeper than that. I mean, I, like, I think about the, um, you know, first of all, just the, just the degree of distortion on stuff like Stooges and MC5. Yeah. Um, 13-floor so, elevators. was so weird for its time. Um, and, it, it, I mean, in the same way, I, I'd sort of, like, you know, to do that, like, uh, SAT analogy thing, it's like, um, you know, Stooges is to everybody else at their time or, you know, during that time as, uh, as my bloody Valentine's, you know, sort of wall of sound was to everybody else. Um, T-Rexes to all the people in Jurassic Park. Yes. Uh, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Basically. Um, you know, uh, and I, I think like, you know, there's some of that sort of psychedelic guitar, like, um, they're, they're sort of obsessed with like the sounds that a guitar can make. And I, I think that, uh, an interesting sort of diversion off the traditional path is, you know, well, there is a traditional path of sort of like blues guitar and, and um, how that's incorporated into rock and roll. Um, but these guys weren't really that interested in, you know, the, the sort of blues scales or jazz scales as they were used in rock and roll throughout the 70s and 80s. These guys were just like, what kind of noises can I tease out of this piece of wood with a couple strings attached to it like you know it's like they're dismantling a lawnmower um, they're gear nerds i mean that's yeah. exactly what they are these these are the type of people that would build their own radios as kids otherwise known as people with no friends yeah exactly <laughs> um and you know that's where they learned their uh valuable social skills that serve them so well on stage um <laughs> but you know i i, I think like uh there was sort of a an interesting i mean i, well, I would say like the Velvet Underground did a little bit of this, right? With with John Cale, who was just such a such a sort of cerebral musician, um, and really sort of on the uh, cutting edge and and very avant garde in terms of what he was trying to do with instruments. I mean, um, if you think about like Black Angel Death Song uh, and or um, uh, you know or the the strings that he uses in songs like Heroin um, you know he's really toying around with with convention um, similarly you have another obsessive and a guy like Thurston Moore who's just been like trying to break his guitar on stage I mean sometimes successfully succeeding yeah exactly um, sometimes less so uh, and you know guys like Glenn Branca and No Wave where you know they were doing something really sort of nasty and distorted and, and atonal and, and um, upsetting uh, to listen to. But what's cool about this is, like, they took all of the effects that those guys have been exploring um, and, and sort of experimenting with for, for a couple decades and basically applied them to the same pop music that you get, like, in the mid to late 80s. It's like it's very sweet music. Um, mm-hmm. It's like it might as well be Aha or something like that, you know? Well, so that was my Cocteau Twins, you know, uh, drawing yeah. from that. I mean, that was a very sort of ethereal. That was the thing is, the you know, I mean, the guitar being one thing, but then they had these sort of overriding ethereal. Very many of these were, you know, 
um, female vocalists. So even more um, sort of, uh, you know, even a sweeter tinge to the vocal, um, you know, with bands like Lush and, and uh, MBV. And, um, totally. Well, it's, it's like it's like you took the cocktail twins and like put them in a blender, and then you put a mic up to the blender. Yeah. Um, you know, it just has that like. Uh, but so the the thing. Sorry, I didn't mean to what get a, off track. No, no, what a brilliant idea! Put yeah, cocktail twins <laughs> in a blender. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, the the in- innovation that Kevin Shields has, and this was this was really cool to me, was that you know he he had this like Yamaha digital effects pedal, which had a backward reverb envelope setting and the, like the basically the big distinction here is that he's hitting these downstrokes really hard and basically just hanging onto the whammy bar and you know it's as his as his wrist and arm is moving um it's just causing uh it's causing these downstrokes to constantly like come in and out of um basically his guitar is going in and out of tune constantly um but it's not one person doing that and of course who else used a whammy bird. This guy's like Dick Dale. I mean, it's like you know, you have to go way back to to um, you know to see that very heavily in use. Um, Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, exactly. But but more you know, but more to achieve like a, a really tight and consistent vibrato. Or um, whereas this is like deliberately designed to sort of create slop. And it wasn't just one guitar doing it. They had the bass and the second guitar doing it too. Um, so all in and all, you have tracking this, the hell out of it. Uh, you know, in this studio as well. So yeah. it's just layers and layers and layers. Exactly. And so you have, like, both guitars and the bass are using this this technique to create this incredibly rich sort of volume. And then, and then you have, you know, relatively straightforward drums that are keeping it chugging along. Um, but then these sweet sort of feminine voices that you were talking about get buried in there. And it's like, it has the effect of... I mean, it, it accentuates even more how... Uh, I, I guess these the guitar, it's like I, the only the image that comes to mind is like of an electron cloud or something. It's just moving so fast that it seems like a, um, it just seems like a, a sort of st- a static or, or you know yeah. stable um, element well, a, in its own right. That's another thing that you know the music that immediately follows it in England kind of informs uh, you know or speaks back to this is you know when you had such clever songwriters as a, a you know as a Jarvis Cocker and a Damon Albarn, um, you know, it really goes to show you how much, how little this was about writing songs and how much it was about the vocal as an additional instrument. Um, it's very much part of, uh, you know, part of the, the sort of... Atmospherics. Musical, yeah, the atmospherics rather than, I mean, the, the words are absolutely negligible, but really the sound of the voice is riding on top of, um, you know, the layers and layers of guitar, just adding a, a set, another tone that, that, you know, really makes it distinctive and, and actually brings the pop sensibility into it. Well, and so one thing I, this is my, this is my super nerdy hot take that nobody cares about for the day. Um, but, uh, just, just so we can, you know, we can preface this by saying this is a super hot take, yeah, um, a, an this album is... from 1991. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, but but I have at least I haven't heard this this said or I, and if frankly if Simon Reynolds hasn't written it somewhere, um, then it probably is an original thought. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think to me the 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 sort of the way that the guitars create this like um, you know 
constant grinding uh, uh, sort of atmosphere, you know, it has a hell of a lot to do with um, with really traditional like drone music um, and drone instruments. And you know, I'm thinking about like uh, no bagpipes. Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, and so if you take take a minute, let's just listen to the Skyboat song um, for a second. Okay, and so the skyboat song there is like uh, you have you know traditional bagpipes which are um, constantly playing this like uh, this this dominant like B flat that's just running through at, completely evenly the entire time at the bottom of the song. And I, it's really, just, I just thought it, I was at a funeral in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, but it it has this uh, this it just creates um, uh, a. a, a Canvas, I guess. Um, it's a wall of a noise. Sonic I mean, canvas, yeah. That 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 you can then toy with and sort of play with at the margins, much like the vocals would be to um, my bloody Valentine. But there's just this ever-present driving, like crushing force that's that's um, you know that that underpins the music. From the Scottish Highlands to the uh, New York City Fire Department. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. No, I, um, I, I, no, it's, a, it's an interesting, no, that's a very interesting take because it, it, there was, you know, some of that, um, you know, you think back to like big countries in a big country, which is, you know, sort of famously sounded like, you know, it was a guitar made to sound like bagpipes. And, um, you know, that, that is another, um, element here that I would never would have put together had you not brought up the, the bagpipe analogy. Well, there's um, a there's I think also it, it speaks to the way that this music kind of makes you feel, um, and it's interesting to me that uh, when I, you know I was in high school and I would play this stuff like um, my mom, who I would never think of as as caring or like you know would would hear Dino Junior and be like you know and just pass. Um, you know, no interest at all. But there is something sort of interesting about this, and, and people get drawn into the melody, I think, despite all the distortion. And really, you know, this this does speak to the fact that, like, the drone sounds are, like, one of the simplest and first forms of, like, music. I mean, it's very primal. Um, and in that way, I think, you know, uh, it's just a, it's a single sustained or repeated note. And, um, you know, it was really sort of some of the first music that, that human beings made. Um, and so the fact that you have that sort of as it's, as it's heartbeat or, you know, at, at the core of the song, oh, yeah. it's like, it really does draw you in. No, it's, it's interesting. And, and it is, I mean, there's a level of monotony to it, but you know, it, it's like, it feels like, 
um, or at least it did at the time, you know, it felt like the people who couldn't hear that, couldn't hear the sweetness in the pop song within the... Well, you go fishing um, around for it. You, yeah, you desperately want to find it, so you sort of help it along. It's it's, it's interesting. It's yeah. It's but it also it, it sort of was a delineation between people. You know, at the time, what was important to me was you know that people liked this kind of good music, and you were constantly proselytizing, and and you couldn't really understand why somebody couldn't listen to, um, yeah. only, you know. Um, when you sleep and and not hear the Shangri-Las in it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, to me, that sounded like, hey, this sounds like Burt Bacharach at this point, you know? I, um, you know it a, does. It's such a it's such, tune. It's such gentle music. Um, it's it, I mean, it really does have... Uh, I mean, to, to me, and, and this is probably also familiarity with it, but there's an almost, like, lullaby quality to that, yeah. to some of these songs. And, yeah, I mean, um, they should have called this album music for benzos. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I think that's probably right. I have no uh, idea what you're talking mis- about. Very miscast <laughs> as very miscast as stoner rock because I mean this shit's perfect for Xanax. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, anyway, I thought I'd toss that out there. But uh, shall we take a quick break and come back and end this episode the way we end every episode? Yeah, except I, I do want to come back in and tears. End, yeah, exactly. I want to come back and talk a little bit about uh, some upcoming stuff too. So we'll be back in a sec. Um, we're going to end this like we end all of our shows with uh, What Are You Listening To and, and adding a song to our playlist. But I first just wanted to say that uh, it is mid-February, and that means we are coming up on March Madness. Uh, last year, uh, we very memorably and clumsily um, made it through 
um, 14 rounds to, to crown America's greatest rock and roll right. band. So that was so much work, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. It was fun. I liked it. No, it was but, a ton of fun. I think we were going to do a slightly truncated version of that this year. Am I correct? Or? Yes. Okay. We are going to change the format a little bit, but we are <laughs> going to have a, a 64... Um, uh, 64 team battle and we will be announcing what the competition is uh, very very soon so that people yeah. can weigh in our, our dedicated producer uh, gun to his head threatening to quit said we are not going to do um, a podcast every single day the tournament is on television again um, which uh, which I think meant that we were pretty much continuously on air for about 24 days but stay tuned for the World Cup of Brother, Brother, Brother. That'll be even even crazier. But yeah, so um, we'll be announcing what the what the uh, competition is this year, um, and we will have a slightly shorter but similarly formatted uh, um, competition for you. It'll be fun to play along. But and anyway, on that note, um, what are you listening to, Christian? Well, uh, always surprised by this question. I don't know how that's possible, um, but. Uh, why don't you go first? Well, I am going to <laughs> steal a couple from you um, that I know that you mentioned, <laughs> as usual. Um, but I have been watching, I did catch up with you on the Johnny Versace thing, which I like a lot. It's fun. Oh, yeah. No, and it's uh, it's really, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's way better than I thought they could do it, um, considering um, the limited... Uh, interaction, I mean, sad, tragic interaction, but the limited interaction between Cunanan and Johnny Versace, I didn't know where they would divine 10 episodes of television from it, and um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm also enjoying Lincoln and the Bardo, um, which I know you've read, um, but I don't know that you ever mentioned on Brother, 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 so uh, George Saunders' novel, um, a very uh, experimental novel about... um, you know, you're usually, it's the typical uh, president talking to his dead son kind of book. What's the, uh, um, yeah, I, I kept thinking, uh, first of all, I had to look up what a bardo was. Um, and for, for the record, it's uh, for those of you who don't know um, and are pretending that you do For those do of right you now, who've been skipping Kabbalah class lately. Yeah, exactly. It's a sort of ethereal never world um, uh, between life and death, I guess. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I believe it's a Buddhist... Is it a Buddhist or a Hindu? Um, Um, I think it's it's probably both. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, it's a bardo. I mean, you know, it's where you hang out uh, after you die and before you go to heaven. And in in this case, uh, there's a lot of... Yeah. A lot of other people from the uh, Rock Creek Cemetery hanging out there, too. Neighborhood, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I keep thinking, I, the entire time I was reading it, I kept thinking of, inexplicably, the, the Bell and Sebastian song, Suki in the Graveyard. Um, but, uh, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I mean, it really, it definitely pushed my um, sort of a, a ability to comprehend, and, and it felt at times like I was reading poetry, not just, um, or sort of lyric, at least it was, you know, fairly lyric at times. Um, and, and sort of the, the patchwork that he does where he draws from, um, uh, basically quotations. Yeah. That are, that are, uh, chunks just drawn from historical texts and, and invented historical texts, um, you know, can, can be, I think a little bit overwhelming if you really try to 
dig too deep and in too much detail, but if you sit back and kind of let it wash over you, it actually yeah, you allow it, it it makes a little bit color. more sense. Yeah. If you um, allow it to just sort of uh, set uh, tone and, and, and illustrate, you know, where you are, where you're spending your time, it's, it's pretty cool. Exactly. Um, so Lincoln and the Bardo. I, yeah. I, I myself like it very much. It also won the Man Booker Award, I believe, this year. Yes, so, it um, certainly did. Um, and so I'm, I'm finally ready. Uh, I've got one here. Okay. Um, yeah. I just, uh, I just finished a really wonderful, um, well, exciting sort of adventure story um, in, in the New Yorker. Uh, obviously, we're not obviously, but it was a true story um, uh, of Henry Worsley, um, who at 55 years old, um, you know, launched this, uh, this solo trek, um, from one end of Antarctica to the other. Um, and he was a, uh, a sort of lifelong amateur historian of, um, uh, of Shackleton's, um, Antarctica, really shitty place. Um, I, I think that that was, that was very effectively communicated in this, but in any event, it's written by David Gran, um, and in you know in the latest uh, latest issue of the New Yorker, but the title is the White Darkness, and you know I, I think it's beautifully written. It tells the story of sort of repeat attempts to um, to actually get to the South Pole. You realize sort of uh, you know what unbelievable amounts of of sort of toughness, endurance, but but really you know mental toughness and endurance as much as physical um, goes into uh, goes into an, an attempt like that. Um, and I think also it's an interesting sort of exploration of the, the motivation that exists in some people to, to really push themselves to that limit. So there's, there's a sort of element of psychology to it as well that I thought was sort of fascinating. So it was a, it's a wonderful read anyway. Um, what, what, give us a time frame. When was this done? When did he attempt this? Because it, it really he most it recently is... attempted in 2015. So oh, Okay, so it's current. Relatively current. Uh, yes. He, oh, okay, um, cool. Yeah, he was... He, He's he made a couple of trips, um, and this is ultimately builds uh, and tells the story of his his uh, most recent trip. Um, but uh, you know, originally did it with a, a team, um, and subsequently decided that you know the the last great achievement um, that existed uh, achievement in exploration on the surface of the Earth um, really is to walk across Antarctica alone. Uh, you know, you, it, it, it takes a certain amount of time and there are only so many quote unquote summer months. Um, I'm not sure I buy, uh, their definition of summer at minus 75 degrees before wind chill. Um, but you know, Hey, at least the sun's out kind of could have waited a few years and swam it. Exactly. I think that might have been more pleasant. So, anyway, oh, that's that's wild. I gotta check that out. Definitely, it's really cool. And then we want to add a song to our four thousand six hundred eighty-two ten best songs of all time playlist. What are you adding this week? So I will let you another surprise question. Yeah, exactly. I will let you take on the uh, um, the addition of a of a great shoegaze song. Um, I'm going to throw on. A song that I heard the other day, and honestly, I was like, 
oh, this is embarrassing. This is like a, you know, 70s tune. And I, I you know, heard the first couple of chords and I was like, I have, I have this is really stupid. I know this. This is like a major petty song or something. Um, and uh, it was Jump Starting by Deer Tick. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. And I realized like how timeless that song feels. It does sound like the, a petty song. Yeah. Um, but from the first time you, uh, you hear it. So it's, it's pretty great. Well, actually, I'm going to go in the in another direction altogether. I was thinking about Shugay's song, and eventually, um, something of uh, Loveless will definitely be on this uh, playlist. But today, I wanted to correct the uh, uh, the absence of "99 Problems" by Jay Z on this uh, particular playlist. It belongs, and it's there now. We may be we may be going uh, to Shugay's as a, as a fallback because if I'm not mistaken uh jay-z's library is not actually available on spot oh shit 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 so actually that is the number one problem um, yeah that we have on this list (laughs) um then i will go um when you sleep my bloody valentine there There you go go. all right well what a problem solved now we've got 98 problems (laughs) All right. All right. This well, was fun. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>